Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, um, the show that is normally introduced by me shouting atonally, but today I, I did like a professional, um, because today uh, myself and my colleagues Garrison and Christopher are talking to someone I'm very excited to chat with, uh, Mr. Corey Doctorow. Corey, welcome Hello. to the show. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to be on it. Uh, it's uh, great to meet you all and to be talking to you today. Corey, you do a lot of writing about kind of technology and surveillance and uh, cultural issues around those. You're also a, an, an author. You've written some great fiction. I think today we'll probably talk most around books like Attack Service and Walk Away, but you've written a lot of wonderful stuff. Um, and you've also worked with the EFF for years and years. Um, mm -hmm. So you've, you, you're you coming at what I love about, I mean, we're going to be talking today broadly about surveillance and kind of the future of, of, of the internet. We'll probably talk about some metaversy stuff. What I love about the way in which you think and write about the future is that you're kind of coming about it from a number of angles, both as like a tech industry journalist, as a, a fiction writer imagining the future, and as somebody who's kind of weighted in as an activist to this. And mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of wondering, where do you see 
like the greatest potential for actual like change? Um, is it is it in kind of is it in lobbying and engaging as an activist, or is it in sort of imagining as a as a as a fiction writer what might be? So I I see them as adjuncts, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, diversity of tactics and all that stuff. Um, the the thing is that tech policy arguments are often very abstract, uh, and they um, are only visceral for the people who would provide the kind of political will to do something about them. Usually that, that comes when it's too late, right? People, people care about tech monopolies once the web is turned into five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four, but not when Yahoo is on a buying spree of tech companies. And we're saying, Oh, that's how tech companies grow. And all tech companies will grow in the future by mm-hmm. buying all their nascent competitors and rolling them up into a big vertically integrated monopoly, which is kind of how we got Facebook and Google and the rest of it. And um, you need to be able to make policy arguments to policy people, but you also need to be able to put uh, some some sinew and muscle on the bone of that highly abstract kind of argument. And and that's where fiction comes in. It's kind of a like um, uh, a, a, a fly-through of like an emotional architect's rendering of what things might look like if we get it wrong or if we change it. It preserves the sense of possibility. You know, I think one of the great enemies of change is the um, inevitabilism of capitalist realism and the idea that there is no alternative. So if you can make people believe in an alternative, then they might work for one. And certainly the opposite is true. If people don't believe there is uh, any alternative possible, they won't work for one. Why, why would you? Uh, and so all of that together, I think, is is part of how you mobilize people to care about stuff. Yeah, I mean, that makes that makes total sense. And it is it, it, it's difficult, I think, because uh, I first came into technology as a journalist and it's very difficult to get people to care about stuff. And I think in particular privacy, which there was um, it has been one of the most interesting cases of like the kind of thought leaders in in a, an industry freaking out over something and people not really having an issue with it because we kind of all agreed to hand over all of our data to a number of big sites. Not all, but I don't know. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I understand the idea that like fiction is um is a much better way to try to get people to care about these things because it makes them feel as opposed to kind of reporting on I think people mm-hmm. can get kind of lost in the weeds of acquisitions and like uh, uh, pivots and you know tech companies acquiring each other and whatnot. Sure. Well, look, I think that the part of the, the the problem with privacy, the reason that we were late to wake up and do something about it, is because it was obfuscated. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've ever seen the maps of like how an ad tech stack works, the flow diagrams, uh, you know, there are some things that are complicated because. Um, there are some things that are hard to understand because they're complicated. And then there are some things that are made complicated. So they will be hard to understand. Mm-hmm. And I think in the case of um, the surveillance industry, the, the latter is true. And it wasn't just that they were trying to play us for suckers. They were also playing their customers for suckers, right? One of the reasons that the ad tech stack is such a snarled hairball is so that the people who buy ads and the publishers who run ads can't tell how badly they're being ripped off by their intermediaries. But this also has the side effect of making it very hard for us to know as the as the kind of inputs to that system how our own uh, dignity and private lives and safety and integrity are being put to risk by these systems as well. Um, and, you know, 
it may be that people, if they had been well-informed about what was going on, they, they might've been indifferent as well. But I think that when most people were very poorly informed, right, when all there mm -hmm. was, was this kind of, the privacy discourse was just like stuff is being, your personal information is being siphoned up, but no kind of specifics on how that was being used and how that was being done and how it might bring you to harm. Um, it's not clear that that you can say that that the reason they were indifferent is because they were fully informed and didn't care. If you know that they weren't fully informed, if you know that they were barely informed. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke, which was, I think, one of the first times that there was a really huge international story that made it clear some of the consequences of all this, like it did provoke a lot of a lot of anger. Um I, I do you worry at all that like there's a degree to which because it because people got tricked or however you want to frame it and it's gone the the kind of um, financialization of people's private data of people's like personal information because that has gone so far there's a risk that people are just kind of inured to it um, yeah well well I mean that kind of gets to my theory of change here which is that there is always going to be a, a, a um, point of, uh, of maximum indifference, peak indifference. You know, um, if you think about something like being a smoker, uh, the the likelihood that you care about uh, cancer goes up the longer you smoke and the more health effects you feel. Mm -hmm. And certainly there will come a point in your life when you will only ever grow more worried about the effects of smoking on your life. But there's also a point of no return. Right, if the point at which you your your concern reaches the point where you're actually going to do something about smoking is the day you get diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, then that um, denialism can slide into nihilism. You can yeah. say, "Why bother?" Right? It's too late. It's like if if we spend years arguing about the crashing population of rhinos, and then finally there's only one left, and you say, "You're right, there was a problem." You might as well say, like, why don't we eat him and find out what he tastes like? It's not like the rhinos are ever going to come back, right? And so for me, so much of the work is about shifting the point of peak indifference to the left of the point of no return on the mm -hmm. timeline so that people actually start to care earlier. Because it's it's it, if you have an, a genuine problem, right, like um, the overcollection of our private data, the mishandling of it, the abuse of it, that genuine problem will eventually produce uh, tangible effects that are undeniable, right? That the, the, our ability to ignore it just goes monotonically down. It's the thing about the climate emergency. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, even if Shell had not, or Exxon had not hidden the data it had on the role that its products were playing in, in climate change in the 70s, it would have been hard to muster a sense of urgency in the 70s, right? Because the story is that in 50 years, something bad's going to happen. But here we are 50 years on, something bad is really happening. And a lot mm. of people are caring about it. They still don't seem to care about it enough. Or maybe they've slid into nihilism. There's certainly, I think, on the part of the elites, a kind of nihilistic sense that maybe they can all retreat to like mountaintops and build yeah. fortresses and breed their children by Harrier jet. You know, and uh, and and you know that nihilism, I think, is is what you get when the point of no return is passed before peak denial, uh, and the privacy um, 
catastrophe that is looming in our future that we haven't quite reached yet. I mean, we've just had the first kind of trickles of the the dam breaking that's in our, our future. It, it hasn't been enough yet to shift mm-hmm. people away from it. But but we might be getting there, right? We might we might eventually be able to uh, do something about it. And one of the things that will hasten that moment is um, it, uh, restoring uh, competition to those industries. That one of the reasons that uh, the industry that spies on us is able to foster denial and indifference is because it is a monopolized industry. Two companies control eighty percent of the the ad market: Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as as monopolists, they're able to extract huge monopoly rents. They're among the most profitable companies in the history of the world. And some of those monopoly rents, rather than being returned to shareholders, can be mobilized to distort policy, to, to make us think that there's nothing wrong with the way that they collect data and use it, to forestall regulation, to pay Nick Clegg $4 million a year to go around Europe and the world and say, as the former deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom, I'm here to tell you that Facebook is the friend of the democratic regimes of the world. <laughs> and, and you know, if, if the anti-monopoly movement, which is a thing I've become very involved with, is able to go from strength to strength, it's surging now, then one of the things that we might do is dis- is destroy the ammunition that's being used by these large monopolistic firms to distort our policy and harm us in these ways with impunity and and then maybe we can actually take the the nascent and, and natural alarm that people do feel about the invasions of their privacy and and actually turn that into privacy policy that is meaningful in respect to these big companies that actually reigns them in yeah, and I, I think I like that you frame it as a privacy catastrophe, because I think, I mean, what I just exhibited earlier in this episode is this this tendency that I certainly see in myself and I see in other people to get kind of beaten down by the continued um, excesses of this industry and the continued kind of failure of anything to be done to curb it. And I think you're right. It has to be viewed as um, as a calamity. And, I, and nothing, I think, makes that clearer than some of the watching some of the stuff Facebook in particular has put out about their plans for the metaverse and kind of thinking back from all of these sensors they want to store in your house, all of the ways in which they want to map everything around you. Um, they never, you know, they, they they kind of advertise this like, you'll be able to play basketball with somebody who's in a different state. But really what it is, is you're giving Facebook access to every measurement of your body and, you know, the the pulse of the beat of your heart and all this this stuff that like, maybe we don't quite know what it would be useful for from a financialization standpoint, but they'll, it, it's unsettling to think that they'll have to find a way because they'll have it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, what is to be done about that other than, as you say, kind of breaking up these monopolies. Well, and, and I mean, breaking up is like one of the things we can mm-hmm. do to monopolies. And, and it mm-hmm. takes a long time. You know, um, AT&T, the first enforcement action against it, uh, happened 69 years before it was broken up in 1982. Yeah. I don't think we can wait that long. But there's a lot of intermediate steps, right? Like we yeah. can force them to do interoperability. We can block them from from uh, predatory acquisitions. We can force them to divest of, of companies and engage in structural separation. We can do all kinds of things. It actually looks like the United Kingdom is going to stop them from buying Giphy, which might seem trivial. After all, it's just like animated GIFs, but... Um, what it actually is is surveillance beacons mm-hmm. in every social media application, right? Because if you're hosting a, a GIF from Giphy, 
in your message to someone else, Facebook has telemetry about that message. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, I, the, uh, the, the, not the ICO, the competition, competition and markets authority in the UK was like, yeah, this is just going to strengthen your market power. That's why you're buying this company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have too much market power already. We're not going to let you do it. Um, it was almost the case that the Fitbit merger was blocked. Google's Fitbit merger. I think, uh, it's still not too late to roll it back. And Lena Khan, who's the new fire breathing dragon in charge of the FTC, who is an astonishing person who was a law student three years ago. Uh, she has said, oh yeah, this, this like $1.3 trillion worth of mergers and acquisitions that you're doing right now to get in under the wire before we start enforcing. Guess what? We're going to unwind those fucking mergers if it looks like they were anti-competitive. And not only are you going to lose all the money you spent on the M&A due diligence and the paperwork and the corporate stuff, but all that integration you're going to do between now and then, you're going to have to de-integrate those companies when we tell you that yeah, you don't have uh, uh, you don't have merger approval and you're on notice. You can't come and complain later, right? Like you can either get in line and wait for us to tell you whether or not your merger is legal, or you can roll the dice. But I tell you what, if you come up snake eyes, you are fucked. And that is amazing, right? That is a powerful change in American industrial policy that really makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, and that is a beautiful thing to think of being in place and actually hitting as hard as it could. Obviously, the concern is that, like, who will be, you know, picking the head of the FTC in three years and change? And, like, how how how, how much influence yeah. is Peter Thiel going to have there and the like? Um, yeah, and I, well, I, and Peter Thiel, of course, loves monopolies. He says competition yeah. is for losers. So you're yeah. right. I mean, obviously, elections have consequences, uh, but you know, one of the ways that you win elections is by making material differences in people's lives. And so, you know, if people are policy, then, uh, one of the most important policies Biden has set so far is hiring Lena Khan and, and her colleagues Cantor at the DOJ and Tim Wu in the white house. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, I, I would love nothing more than to see particularly like Facebook reined in at this point, because I'm one of the casualties of the, uh, of the, of the, the ad market, like crash of, uh, started in like 2016, 17, it feels like the odds of them being able to like, I don't know, we, we've got three years where we know, you know, theoretically the, these policies will be in place and, and I don't know, I'm hopeful. Like when I, when I, cause the Republicans are talking a lot about regulating social media too, about even breaking up these companies, but they, they often tend to be talking about it in a very different way and with a very different kind of end goal in mind. Um, and I guess, you know, obviously they know that, right? Facebook, they they are well aware that, like, this might be a wait-out-the-clock situation for them, and they have some arrows uh, in I, that quiver. I mean, that may be so, but also remember that 80% yeah. of Facebook's users are outside of the U.S. Yeah. And that even a change in administration here won't won't um, put Margaret Vestager, who's the, the competition commissioner in the EU, back in the bottle. And she's another fire breather. Great. Right? She's another yeah. amazing person. And so, you know... I, I wouldn't be too quick to write that off. I mean, Facebook uh, needs its foreign markets. Yes, its U.S. Yeah. customers are worth more to anyone else because we have the most primitive privacy frameworks, so it can extract a lot more data. From, like, we're the, we're the richest people with the worst privacy. Yeah. So that's, that's um, you know, it's a real home court advantage for Facebook, but it needs that other 80% of its users. It, it wouldn't be what it is without them. And that makes it subject to their jurisdiction. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things about ad-driven firms like Facebook... Um, is that they really need sales offices in country. 
Uh, so, you know, even before we, we had the proliferation of national firewalls, which don't get me wrong, I don't think is a good thing. Um, these large global firms that operated, um, sales offices in country in every territory they worked in were vulnerable to regulation because if you have staff in a country, then you have someone that can be arrested, right? And so it's not like they can just be like, I don't know, like the Tor project, which mm -hmm. just, you know, it has people um, who who sit and hack on tour who are close to lawyers who can defend people who sit on hack and to on tour. Uh, you know, if the tour project had to have staff full-time in Turkey and China and Russia and Syria in order to operate, yeah. <laughs> it would be a very different project. But, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Google, they all have staff in those countries and it makes them vulnerable to regulation. And so, you know... China's really interesting because because um, uh, Xi Jinping, for his own reasons, which are not my reasons and distinct from the Democrats and the Republicans' reasons, is doing stuff to rein in big tech in China. Mm -hmm. And it's actually quite interesting because, you know, the argument that Nick Clegg makes when he says why we shouldn't break up Facebook is he says, uh, you know, China is coming for your um, for your IP and for your industrial competitiveness uh, with its big tech giants that it treats as national champions that project soft power around the world. Meanwhile, China is like, these tech giants? We hate these tech giants. They present a countervailing force to the hegemony of the of the Communist Party and the and the executive branch that Xi Jinping sets at the top of. We're gonna neuter them and we're gonna we're gonna disappear their founders like Jack Ma into fucking <laughs> gulags. Right? Like they're like we don't want national champions because the nation that, you know, Weibo and Alibaba is the champion for is Weibo and Alibaba and Tencent. They're not, they're not champions for China by any stretch of the imagination. They don't give a shit about China. And so, you know, all of these companies are going to face regulatory pressure, anti-monopoly regulatory pressure all over the world. And you're, you're so much more, um, optimistic, I guess, about about the potential for that to bite than a lot of people I talk to. And I think more knowledgeable as well. And I, I kind of wonder, because there's this very strong, obviously influenced by decades of cyberpunk attitude that like we're in this age of mega corporations whose power is, you know, there's nothing that can stop Amazon from doing what Amazon wants to do, right? Facebook's going to keep doing whatever they want to do forever. You you clearly don't believe that. And I, you know, I, you, you clearly know your stuff. I'm wondering why you think that that image is still persist so persistent that like attitude in our heads of uh these 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 are kind of monolithic forces in our society that um just have to be endured so i think it's a belief in the great forces of history right mm -hmm. um and the great man theory you know that the the these um uh you know that these rich people are driving history yeah, uh, these 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 powerful figures are driving history. They're in charge. They're in the driver's seat. I mean, that's kind of what's behind Trump derangement syndrome, right? The idea that Trump is a uniquely powerful and and talented demagogue, as yeah. opposed to just like a demagogue shaped uh, puzzle piece that fit in the demagogue shaped hole mm -hmm. that was left by the collapse of credibility of capitalism, uh, and you know, a man who is clearly too stupid yeah. to be a cause of anything and will only ever be the effect of something, and. Uh, you know the the for me the theory of of history and how it goes was really uh, transformed by an exercise that my friend Ada Palmer does. 
So Ada is a science fiction novelist. She's she's just published the fourth book of her Terra Ignota series, her debut series. It's an incredible series of books. But she's a real like kind of multi-talented, multi-threat. So she's a librettist and singer who's produced album-length operas based on the Norse mythos. She's also a tenured history of um, a tenured professor of Renaissance history in Florence at the University of Chicago, where she studies heterodox information pornography, homosexuality, witchcraft, and so on during the Inquisitions. And every year with her undergrads, she reenacts through a four-week-long live-action role-playing game the election of the Medici's Pope. (laughs) And each of her students takes on the role of a cardinal from a great family in the the actual election of the, I I forget what year it was, uh, 1490 or something, maybe 1510, I forget. But uh, they each take on the, uh, the the this role, and they have a character sheet and it has motivations. It's like a dinner party murder mystery. But for four weeks, they make alliances, break alliances, stab each other in the back, uh, stage surprise reversals. And at the end of the four weeks, there's this uh, faux Gothic cathedral on campus. And they dress up in costume. Ada has a... Uh, uh, a Google alert for theater companies that are getting rid of their costumes. So she clothes them in the garb of, of the Medici's Cardinals and they gather and they go into a room and then a puff of smoke emerges and you get the new Pope. And every year, four of the final candidates, uh, there are four final candidates rather, and two of them are always the same because the great forces of history bear down on that moment to say those people will absolutely be in the running for the for the papacy and two of them have never once been the same because human action still has space to alter uh the outcomes that are prefigured by the great forces of history and so for me the idea of being an optimist or a pessimist has always felt very fatalistic it it's this either way this idea that the great forces of history have determined the outcome and human action has no bearing on it and i think that uh, rather than optimism or pessimism, we can be hopeful. And that's the word you used before. Hope is the idea not that you can see a path from here to the place you want to get to, but rather that you haven't run out of things that you can do to advance your your goal, right? Because if you can take a step to advance your goal, if you can ascend the gradient towards the peak that you are trying to reach, then you will attain a new vantage point and from that vantage point, you may have revealed to you courses of action that you didn't suspect before you took that step. So, so long as a step is available, there's always another step lurking in the wings that you can't see from where you are. And the reason I'm hopeful about this is I can think of like 50 things that could improve the uh, monopoly picture that we're living in now. And it's up from 30 things last year. And so even though I don't know how we get from here to a better future, and even though I absolutely see the blockers you're talking about, mm-hmm. a Trump landslide, uh, lo- losing Congress because they let Joe Manchin and, and Christian Cinema <laughs> neuter yeah. the, the, the Build Back Better bill, um, you know, all of those things that can happen, I have hope, you know, which is not the same as optimism or a belief that things will be great or even, even like a sense, uh, a lack of a sense of foreboding. I have mm-hmm. that in spades. But uh, I have hope that when the next phase of the fight begins, that we will have many um, vulnerable spots we can strike at and that we can capitalize on whichever victories we attain to find more vulnerabilities and move on. 
I think that's so important. And I think it goes in line with, to bring up climate change again, the idea that like one of the most toxic things you can think re climate change is that there's nothing to do. We're already past every point of no return and there's no there's no positive action because it just leads you to doing the same thing as the people who deny it. Um, and it, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's very important to um, recognize that like not only are there things you can do, but when you do those things, you start taking those steps, other steps reveal themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was, and you know what, if you're feeling nihilistic about, uh, about climate, um, I'm nearly through Saul Griffith's book, Electrify. Uh, Saul's a, an old friend of mine. He's a MacArthur winner. He's an electrical engineer. And he's just done the, he's, it's a popular engineering book. It's one of my favorite genres. They're like popular science books, except instead of telling you about how science works, they tell you about how engineering works. And he's basically like, here is why all the estimates of how much renewables we need are hugely overestimated. And it's basically that like keeping uh, fossil fuel power online requires a lot of fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. Right. So something like 40% of that estimate is just, it's the energy that we need to make the energy and it's not present in electrical models. Here's how we can manufacture it. Here's how we can distribute it. Here is basically how, if we can figure out the financing, uh, Americans can, uh, spend less money every year than they do now to get more stuff that they love every year that we can do this without hair shirts. It's a spectacular book. Um, and you know, I, I don't agree with everything Saul says every, all the time, but he is very careful about his, uh, technical facts. There aren't technical errors in this. There might be assumptions that we disagree with, but as a technical matter, he's basically written a piece of design fiction in which over the next 15 years using clever finance and, and solid engineering, we really actually do avert the climate emergency. And yeah, as always, kind of the main barriers to doing the best version of the thing is the the political realities on the ground. You know, you have to, but I think that's the that's the value of at least trying to make it clear that there are options. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I wanted to shift for a moment. Um, I was thinking recently about, I think, probably the earliest back book of yours that I've read, Pirate Cinema, which is heavily involved. I think I'm going to, you know, if if you're one of the folks like me uh, who was on the internet back when, you know, file sharing sites when that was a huge topic of discussion, when the RIAA was going after people, when like copyright uh, was kind of a, 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 a much more prevalent part of kind of the online discourse. Um, it, it deals a lot in that and these kind of, I think there's elements of it that kind of prefigured what Disney has done buying up every imaginable fictional property in the world. And that's kind of the the elements of dystopia that book deals with is 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 you know the attempts of these this these giant multinational entertainment corporations to shut down the free ta- trading of ideas remixing and all that stuff and then kind of thinking about the difference between the focus of that and the focus of books like attack surface where you're really delving more into you know i i the fictional versions of real life companies like tiger swan that do it uh uh, uh what's the word surveillance on protesters and all around the world and that are kind of using tactics that were pioneered by other contractors in like Iraq and Afghanistan years earlier. I guess kind of the things that I find interesting about that is as I can remember when I was first on the internet, the the big social kind of crusades online with the people that that I paid attention to at least was all around copyright. It was about not just, you know, the attempts to sh- stop people from remixing and sharing copyrighted work, but about um, attempts to like buy up copyrights and like into these these ever kind of larger uh, uh, um, agglomerations and and that's kind of hit it seems to have hit like a terminal point with uh, you know movies like uh, uh, Ready Player One and kind of a lot of the stuff we're seeing in Marvel where everything's showing up everywhere Space Jam um, Two Space Jam Two um, I guess the part of it that feels less dystopian today is attempts to crack down on file sharing, which I don't think went kind of in the worst case scenario. I'm interested actually in your thoughts on that because um, I can remember, you know, when the RIA would be threatening people with years in jail and whatnot over sharing stuff on Kazaa. We, we seem to be, I don't know, is it just that it gets less? Like, I'm interested in your in your thoughts on that. Is it just that it's less publicized when they crack down on people, or has kind of the nature of their response to that really changed? Well, I think that what's happened with uh, the the kind of um, steady state of the copyright wars has been the introduction of um, brittleness and fragility into our speech platforms like Twitter mm-hmm. uh, and and Facebook and YouTube, where it's very easy to get material removed by mm-hmm. by making copyright claims. 
Um, and, you know, we see that with the sleazier side of the reputation management industry where they use bogus copyright claims to take down uh, criticisms. You, you, you know, there was a group of uh, leftists who were really celebrating the idea that if you if Nazis were marching in your town, you could stop them from uploading their videos by playing copyrighted music in the background. And I was like, y you have no idea what a terrible fucking idea that is. And, you know, I, within a couple of years, cops in Beverly Hills were doing mm -hmm. it whenever people tried to film the police or they would just turn on some Taylor Swift to try and stop uploading. Um, you know, the, the thing about the copyright wars is that the real action turned out to be in um, wage theft uh, through monopolization. So, you know, the neutering and destruction of label independent uh, music distribution platforms like Kazaa or Grokster or Napster and the Supreme Court decision, uh, the Grokster decision that supported that uh, meant that the only um, way that you could launch a service like that was in cooperation with the big labels. And the, the you know, most successful one is Spotify. Spotify is actually uh, partially owned by the labels and the labels use that ownership stake to negotiate a, a kind of formalized wage theft where they uh, allowed for a lower per stream rate because when they get royalties for a stream, part of that money goes to their musicians. Mm -hmm. And that meant that the firm Spotify retained more profits, which it returned to it in the form of higher dividends. And dividends go just straight to their shareholders. They don't, that there's no claim that musicians can make on this. And because they set the benchmark rate, it meant that everyone, irrespective of whether you were signed to one of the big three labels, ended up uh, getting the same uh, per stream rate as uh, as Universal's artists. So they were able to structure the whole market. In the meantime, in the industrial side, uh, copyright laws, notably Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is a, a law passed in 1998 yeah. that makes it a felony to remove DRM, to bypass a technical protection measure. Um, that has become the go-to system for blocking repair, interoperability, uh, and to prevent third parties from um, uh, from from creating services or add-ons that accomplish positive ends like improved accessibility, improved security, um, ad blocking, and privacy, and so on, they just say, "Well, you know, we we put a a one molecule thick layer of DRM around, say YouTube, and when you make a YouTube downloader for archival purposes or whatever, um, you uh, you just create a." Um, a, uh, a, you you bypass our technical protection measure, and so you're committing a felony, and you can go to prison for five years and and pay a five hundred thousand dollar fine, and so you have this like relentless monotonic expansion of DRM into like automotive tractors. Mm -hmm. um, Medtronic uses it to block people from fixing ventilators. Um, so you know this this um, assault on the ability to reconfigure a technology that is ever more prevalent in our lives and that increasingly holds our lives in its in its hands right its choices determine whether we live or die has been really consequential and i know we don't really think of it as a copyright problem we think of it as right to repair we think of it as security yeah. auditing or accessibility but the the rule that is being used to block interoperability is a copyright law it's what printer companies use to stop you from buying third-party ink um, it's what Apple uses to stop you from installing a third-party app store. And, you know, the absence of a third-party app store is why when Apple removed all the working VPNs in China, 
Chinese users couldn't just switch to another app store that had working VPNs in it. And so, you know, the, this um, end game of the copyright wars is, I think, a lot more dystopian than uh, merely suing college kids. Yeah, uh, it's it's actually really screwed us in ways that are that are um, hard to fathom. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating example of kind of dystopic creep because at least kind of from my more more ignorant position when I was 19, I was like worried that all of these these people remixing music in movies that I liked like were going to get cracked down on or have their stuff pulled. Um and the the kind of thing that I didn't I don't think a lot of people saw coming until it hit, I certainly didn't was what you were just talking about, the fact that kind of the logic of how these these entertainment companies were looking at like an album or you know a movie and and cutting up pieces of that they've they've applied to like a tractor you know and now you can't like repair your John Deere or modify your John Deere so it works better and then you know you you get situations like we just kind of averted with the John Deere strike where there was a very real possibility that we wouldn't be able to get a large chunk of a harvest because there wouldn't be parts and you can't put your own in and that's to think that that the thought process that led us there started with like trying to protect Metallica in some ways is kind of well, funny. And this is why the anti-monopoly critique is great mm-hmm. because it shows you that there's cause for solidarity between John Deere tractor owners and John Deere tractor uh, man- uh, makers, the, mm-hmm. the workers who work there, because the same force that has allowed John Deere to cram down its workforce for 40 years is the, is the force that allows it to um, uh, take away the agency and economic liberties of farmers who own John Deere tractors. And it's, it's the, it's the political power that comes with monopoly. And so, you know, if John Deere were a smaller, weaker firm, it would be less able to resist both the claims of its workforce and the claims of its, um, uh, customers. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes sense. And it is like, I like that idea of, of, because it's not just kind of solidarity between John Deere purchasers um, and and the people who work in the factories. It's also there's kind of solidarity between a wide ch- – like mm-hmm. anyone concerned with um, copyright, the, it, it, it's a much broader base of solidarity than just people who are worried about you know what's happening uh, uh, to fiction or like what Disney's doing to like copyrights around Mickey Mouse or whatever. Like it's it, – you can, you can draw in concerns – um, from right to repair to a bunch of other things, which potentially means there's there's a greater body of people available for action if you can make them see kind of um, converging interests there, which is I think is an interesting idea. Well, I think you're getting at something really important, and this is um, uh, this comes from James Boyle, who's a copyright scholar at Duke University and was really involved in founding Creative Commons and in those early copyright fights. and And Jamie makes an analogy to the coining of the term ecology. Mm-hmm. And he says that before the term ecology came along, you know, some of us cared about owls and some of us cared about the ozone layer, but it wasn't really clear that we were on the same side. You know, it's not clear if you're a Martian looking through a telescope, you might be hard pressed to explain why, you know, the destiny of charismatic, charismatic nocturnal birds and the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere were the same issue, right? And the term ecology let all these people who cared about different things find a single point to rally around. It turned a thousand issues into one movement. And I think that in the, in the course of resisting corporate power, which is to say resisting monopoly, we have the potential to weld together people from very diverse fields, you know, farmers and, and people who make tractors. Sure. But you know, if you grew up 
uh, watching professional wrestling and now you're aghast that the uh, wrestlers that you loved are begging on GoFundMe for pennies to die with dignity. You know, once someone explains to you the reason that that's happening is that 30 wrestling leagues became one wrestling league that was able to practice worker misclassification, turn those performers into contractors, take away their health insurance and leave them to die. Then suddenly you're on the same side of the people who are worried about big tech and big tractor. And the people are worried about the fact that there's only one manufacturer of cheerleading uniform uniforms and two manufacturers of athletic shoes and two manufacturers of spirits and two manufacturers of beer and one manufacturer of eyewear that also owns all the eyewear stores and the eyewear insurer. You know that Duff Beer thing from the early Simpsons mm-hmm. where there's like Duff Beer Raspberry, yeah, Duff yeah, Beer Light, yeah. Duff Beer Bach, <laughs> and it's all coming beer. out of one thing. Yeah. Dolce & Gabbana, Oliver Peoples, Bausch & Lohm, uh, Versace, every eyewear brand you've ever heard of is one company, Coach, all of them. And they also own Sunglass Hut and uh, Target Optical and Sears Optical and Lens Crafters and Spec Savers and every other eyewear store you've ever heard of. And they bought all the labs that make the lenses. So more than half the lenses in the world come from them, a, a division called Essilor. And they bought IMED, which is the company that bought all the insurance companies that insure eyewear. And so they're also the company that's insuring your glasses, your your eyes. One company. And eyewear costs 1,000% more than it did a decade ago. They stole our fucking eyes, right? So people who care about that have common cause with people who care about wrestlers and people who care about beer and big tech and the fact that there's four shipping companies and they have no competitive pressure, and so they just keep building bigger ships that get stuck in the fucking Suez Canal, right? We're all on the same side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I like the idea that I like I, I like hoping that that kind of inherent solidarity, if you can point it out to people, is potentially an antidote to, or at least a partial antidote to, the level of the layer of politicization that's fallen down over everything. Um, that stops people from actually considering matters, but instead considering like I don't know, is this owning the libs, right? Like if you if they if if you can get them to see that like yeah, their favorite wrestler is like dying because he couldn't afford insulin, and that like that's tied to the issue of like the reason his dad can't get tractor parts this year or whatever, um, and that that's tied to other issues that are maybe championed by people he would reflexively dismiss, but like yeah, I I, I find that really inspiring. It's still a significant. There's a significant challenge for people who are trying to make those connections for folks who are who are trying to like inform them of of that state. I mean, yeah, that's true. And you know, like Steve Bannon will tell you that the reason to do culture war culture mm-hmm. culture war bullshit mm-hmm. is because politics are down downstream from culture. Yeah. And there's probably an element of truth to that. But I also think the reason that people find culture war bullshit so uh, attractive is because they got nothing else. Yeah. I, right? I, I think we, we talk about that a lot within the context of conservative for politics. I grew up very conservative, and I do remember how the tenor of things I was hearing through the Bush years changed from advocation of policies to just all culture war all the time, all all striking the dims all the time. And it was the kind of um, – it, it it and that's not the only place it's happened. You see it on the left too, absolutely. Like it's it's endemic now. It's it's a, a poison in kind of the the discourse. But I think that there's a lot that needs to be. I think there's a lot to be discovered still for like how to break people out of that. Hold up. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I'm kind of bullish when we talk about these issues like you were bringing up with sort of the monopolization of these industries you wouldn't expect would be monopolized. I'm hopeful about the future that stuff like 3D printing presents for that. We have an organization in Portland that does kind of 3D printing glasses frames and stuff and is is helping people with that sort of stuff. And I've, I'm in conversations with like the um, uh, the Four Thieves Vinegar Collective, uh, I think it's called. Yeah, um, I the, know those some, folks. Yeah, some of the folks doing like trying to do – working on pharmaceutical hacking, making at the moment like lower cost uh, uh, kind of home scratch brood versions of like different AIDS medications. And the, the Holy Grail is doing that with um, insulin effectively. Um, and I, I think it is – and I, I do think one of the things that's exciting about that is because the way in which – the way in which collaboration on 3D printing works and the way in which actually spreading like the ability to do stuff works, I think it synergizes nicely with the ability of people to kind of reach other folks through writing or other forms of content because they can both spread through the same. You can have a video or a story and you can have like kind of embedded guides on how to do that. Um, I, I I don't know that I've I've read into a lot of your writings on kind of the potential of 3D printing in this space, but I'm interested in like – to what do you, do you, 
are you looking at that as kind of an, an area of hope, or do you see that still as kind of too too niche and labor focused to really actually take off in the way that it would need to to crack some of these nuts? This is where I do my my Woody Allen, uh, mm-hmm. you know nothing of my work uh, shtick because yeah. I I had this novel Naker, Makers in two thousand and nine. I haven't that was read Makers in yet. Two thousand and eight. Yeah. It's it's why uh, uh, Brie Pettis went out and founded MakerBot, mm-hmm. uh, and it's you know credited with like kickstarting the mm-hmm. homebrew three D printed revolution. Blah 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 blah. And um, and it was a very bullish novel about three D printing. I um. You know, the reality hasn't lived up to the hype yet. It may just be that we're in the long trough of despair as the the Gartner hype cycle model has it. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the problem with um, 3D printing was that uh, the patents had been concentrated into the hands of two large firms mm-hmm. uh, that had bought all their competitors, including MakerBot. And um, when those patents finally expired, the big one was the, the laser centering of, of powder patent expired. There just wasn't a big bang. And I think it's because the supply chain for it still had a lot of proprietary elements. And so producing the the powder and producing the the components that allowed for that uh, powder printing remained a very high bar. And so we just didn't see the kind of new industry emerge that we would have hoped for. And, you know, it's like seven years since those patents expired or five years since those patents expired. Now we're seeing a few more of those powder printers. You get a lot more like UV cured epoxy printers because um, those came off patent earlier and they have a less complicated supply chain. Um, But still, I mean, mostly when we talk about printers, we're talking about filament and Mm -hmm. just filaments, just not a great technology. It's been pushed in ways that you wouldn't even believe. And people have figured out how to do absolutely incredible things with it, but it's not, it's not something that you would make aerospace components for, you know, no. it's, it's, it's something that you make, um, uh, novelty dungeons and dragons dice out of. Yeah. Which is an important industry to disrupt. Don't get me wrong, I, but I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I can remember paying 30 bucks for a set of dice as a kid and thinking somebody's got to <laughs> fix this scam. I, um, I can, I can print you some for Christmas, Robert. Thank you, Garrison. And you know, now I I own a uh, I bought a Comic Con a couple of years ago. I bought a tiny little D twenty made mm. out of meteoric ore. Oh, so I have a sky metal D twenty. Oh, now that's yeah, that's that's classy. Um, I'm curious. We've got a little bit of time left, and I wanted to ask in your your novel Attack Surface. Uh, I know it was released 2020, right? October, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and obviously, a lot of that deals with again these kind of like corporations that have been contractors for the DOD doing like fucked up surveillance shit in Iraq and Afghanistan, bringing that technology to crack down on like U.S. uh, sort of dissident left-wing political movements. It comes out the year that we have a nationwide kind of uprising um, that a lot of fucked up surveillance shit that had been kind of demoed stateside around it like Standing Rock and whatnot gets gets really put into its own. How much of that was written – before shit went down and i and i'm assuming like i I don't know exactly how your process works but i'm wondering like i assume you started the project before everything went the way it did last summer how much did kind of what happened last summer affect the way you imagined that technology and those tactics functioning in that book yeah the the timeline goes the other direction i i wrote that book uh before the the summer uprising Mm -hmm. um long 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 before that and I wrote it about things like um, the surveillance technology we saw in Belarus and Kiev sure. 
and also at Occupy and Standing Rock uh, and at other Black Lives Matter demonstrations and uprisings in America. Ferguson, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. And if you, you know, also the monotonic expansion of surveillance leaks, right? Where, you know, first we learned about MC catchers and then we learned about dirt boxes, which are MC catchers on airplanes. And, you know, like we just, all of that stuff leaked like crazy because, you know, these surveillance giants are are not good at what they do, Mm -hmm. right? Which isn't a reason we should be hopeful. No. A company that's bad at what it does is, is in some ways even worse because one of the ways that they're, incompetence expresses itself is that they often gather a bunch of data on innocent people and then leak it. Yeah. Right. Not, not maliciously just through incompetence. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 this expansion of surveillance has like been on my mind for a long time. I've been writing about it. Well, at least since little brother, right. So 2006, I wrote that novel and, and I've had my finger in that. Yeah. So I've had my finger in that for all that time. And and working with EFF, it was impossible to miss. Sure. It, w- was there a degree to which, um, I don't know, I guess were you surprised by anything that happened last summer? Or did it just kind of comprehensively feel like these are everything slotting into place that I knew was heading in this direction? Because, yeah, I mean, you're right. I did, I like, there was, like, uh, uh, everything was kind of presaged um, years before. I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm wondering if, if there was anything that kind of surprised you. Um, or was it, was it all just sort of what you'd been braced for? Yeah. I, I don't feel like there were any kind of surveillance surprises. I mean, the reverse, the, the, the use of reverse warrants, I think Mm -hmm. we all kind of, uh, assumed was going on. There had been hints of it in Google's warrant canaries beforehand, but, uh, you know, those geofence warrants, which again, if you're like sitting there going, oh, geofence warrants are awesome because they're catching the one uh, six rioters, like, yeah. dude, you are going to be so disappointed. Yeah, holy shit, yeah, that's uh, not where they're going to keep using those. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you know, learning more about those reverse warrants, I think, was was interesting. Um. But I don't feel like I, I don't. Well, off the top of my head, I can't say that there was any new technical stuff that emerged. You know, I I um kickstarted the audiobook for Attack Surface. Uh, and I, I offered as like the top tier, you could commission short stories in the little brother universe. Mm-hmm. And there were three of those. And I just finished the first of them and it's about, um, future pipeline protests. And, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time w- in my research, looking at the surveillance that was done on the pipeline protests. And a lot of it was provocateurs and undercovers who were just terrible at their jobs. Yeah. Right. Like they intercepts long publication of, of, uh, you know, long documents about how those o- operators worked. They just like showed up in military haircuts and combat boots. And then we're like, Hey, I'm from Portland and I'm here because we are going to fuck up some bad guys. Let's mm-hmm. go do it. Let's go do violence and save Indian country. And like, everyone was like you and like, does anyone want to buy drugs? And, and the actual protesters were like, you're a provocateur. Like, go away, you know, like we they could tell. I mean, I guess, you know, they were a lot more effective in the UK in, in infiltrating the climate movement. You know, they mm. impregnated several protesters. So, you know, and had long term relationships with them and raised kids with them. So, yeah, there is that. Yeah, but here, stories. Mm-hmm. yeah, here <laughs> it was not. They, they, we did just didn't see that incredible efficacy. Yeah. And I, I do think that that's 
I, I think kind of the message I took out of it, because I, I was, I, I started reporting on like dirt boxes back during Standing Rock, just having them like, it, it explained to me by people who were on the ground when I showed up that like, yeah, there's this, you're like, phones don't work the same out here. And like, we're trying to figure out what's going on, but like everything is, is and it's not just that we're out in the sticks or anything. And I think the only surprise, the big surprise for me last year was how, I think how little the technology accomplished for them and how much it, it just it just wound up back down to violence. It, it, like that was kind of the, for all of the, the toys they had, the toys that actually made the most difference was gassing and beating people. And, and violence and like old fashioned informants. That was mm-hmm. that was the stuff. Yeah, they, and just having they, a dude there. Yeah, they they, yeah. they really, really relied on, and, and the fact that you that that you Corey weren't super surprised by anything last year, I think, kind of just more shows kind of the strength of your work in terms of how you're very yeah. good at seeing the trends that are already happening, but taking them to their next logical place, um, and it's a really great way to kind of get a sense of what is something, what is what will something maybe look like in the next decade or so because it's, it's all based on already existing stuff just in different kind of original ways and that's why i think it's it's so useful to look at your books as as an activist specifically around like surveillance and stuff because it's it's just a really it's it's really good for kind of keeping keeping an eye on keeping what, ahead yeah, yeah and, and keeping an eye on what's keeping an eye on you um mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff this was a really lovely conversation. It was a lovely last thing to do in my home office in 2021 because I leave tomorrow and won't be back until the next year. And then mm-hmm. I'm actually going to be offline for a month after a joint replacement. So it was uh, it was really lovely to meet you all and yep. to chat with you. Thank, Thank you, you so you for much this. for chatting with us today, Corey. My yeah. pleasure. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.